to Nonprofit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Rhea Wong with you once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. So today my guest is Daniel Robutzi. We are going to talk about mergers and acquisitions, which is not something that we talk about a lot in the nonprofit sector, but I think is really important to discuss. So welcome, Daniel. Well, thank you, Rhea, very much. And let me just say, first of all, what an honor it is to be with you on the podcast. And just to thank you, in fact, for launching the podcast. It's a must listen for those of us out there in the nonprofit sector. And quick thanks as well for your inspiring leadership all those years at Breakthrough New York. Oh, thanks, Daniel. I promise I did not pay him to say that, you guys. But (laughs) you, flatterer, you, flattery will get you everywhere with me. But thank you. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here. Daniel currently is the founder and lead consultant at Indigo Pheasant, but prior to that has had a long career in the nonprofit sector. So Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and then present day, what is Indigo Pheasant? Sure. Thank you, Ria. So indeed, I, I uh, have spent decades in organizational life, most recently as the executive director and member of the board of the youth development organization called Mouse, mouse.org, based in New York, but national focused on youth development and the uses of technology. Prior to that, I was the founding chief operating officer for Year Up in New York City, likewise working with young people from the least advantaged, least represented communities in New York City, connecting them with 21st century careers. And prior to that, the first ever national program director for the Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, NIFTY, likewise based in New York, likewise national, same sort of mission. And I've done similar things in in prior places. I actually started, and this is relevant to the broader discussion on today's podcast, I started as a banker. I was a VP, a vice president in corporate finance at the old Manufacturers Hanover Trust Company back in the 80s. Uh, That was merged into what eventually became J.P. Morgan Chase. And long story short, I combine that bankerly approach to organizational structures with the mission that we share in the nonprofit sector. And from my perspective, particularly on the youth development, economic development side, I have, as I said, for decades been part of and leading teams and organizations, for-profit, nonprofit. And after a six-month internal transition with my wonderful colleagues at Mouse, real shout out to the co-chairs, the entire board and the team there, I deliberately chose to step down to enter consulting career, as my thoughts and ideas, some of which we'll talk about today with, with you, Ria. You know, things that we, you can't do when you are, in fact, you know, exclusively focused on a given, you know, the organization you lead, right? So some broader sectoral ideas. So I founded my own, I mean, it sounds grand, right? A company, it's a limited liability company with one employee, myself, I'm a solo practitioner. Indigo Pheasant, the name actually comes from the title of my second novel on the side. I'm a published novelist. My publishers are title, and that begs the question, so what the heck is that? In a nutshell, and this is not a pitch to go buy the book and find out more, although if you're interested, please do. Indigo Pheasant is the chip that the characters in my novel, which is in my version of the 19th century in London, they create a ship together that they use to, in effect, save the world. And the crew that does this is, it would be anachronistic to say it's a multicultural crew because in 19th century London, they didn't have those terms, but that's precisely what they are. And so it's for me, it's been a way for me to think about how we collectively achieve 
social justice aims, frankly, in our in our social sector work. And so hence Indigo Pheasant. Okay, wonderful. And kudos to you for leading in the field some very important initiatives and programs for young people. So let's talk more broadly about mergers, and then we can talk more specifically about the one that you've led. But why is it, do you think, that mergers and acquisitions are relatively rare in the nonprofit sector? It's a big question, right? I mean, it, and it's certainly one that you know many of us, many others have, have been asking for quite some time. Part of it is actually the legal structure, just to be clear about that for a second. You know, the incentive structure in the nonprofit world by law is obviously different from that which, say, I first cut my teeth on as a for-profit banker with for-profit clients. By definition, in the 501c3 world, there are no owners. You cannot, right, your fiduciaries, you, you cannot cash out. In the for-profit world, there are clear owners, very clearly defined. And at some level, even if it's a founder and a family firm, and they say, we'll never sell, Typically, almost always, there is in fact some price at which they could sell. So there is there is a powerful, yeah, that's the point of a market, right? In, in the for-profit side, there's a powerful monetary incentive to drive what we'll call more generally strategic organizational initiatives, restructurings, up to and including the most dramatic being mergers and acquisitions, which which are existential for an organization. An organization won't exist in the same form or exist at all after after MA, right? So even with all of the counter arguments on the for-profit side, there's a powerful legal mechanism and market incentives to make them happen. And they happen as a matter of routine, right, in the for-profit world. So therefore, by definition, it's just much more difficult with lacking that clear monetary incentive, right, because we're in the nonprofit sector. You, you cannot cash out. There is no profit. We are not owners. It means that the countervailing the inertia, if you will, the arguments against consolidation and combination tend to win the day. They, they, they gain the upper hand. What's my incentive if I'm the founder, if I'm the executive director, if I'm the board, if I'm the staff of a nonprofit? It, you know, assuming you're doing, for sake of argument, say, you know, you're doing demonstrably effective work at some level, some third party. Why, in fact, would you choose to merge yourself out of existence or seek to acquire another with all the work entailed? If there's not that broader, you know, incentive to do so, that's the just, you know, to contrast it with why M and A is just bread and butter on the other side. So, Daniel, can you talk a little bit about the reasons for and reasons against a merger on the nonprofit side? Sure, I think on the nonprofit side, there are two buckets, if you will, two categories of of, of rationale. Most importantly, and this is proactive and positive, you should be thinking about merger. I would argue, or, or other forms of strategic combination and alliance to increase your effectiveness, all right? I mean, the bottom line is that most nonprofit organizations, when you get away from the, you know, the hospitals and the universities at that mega scale, but the vast majority of us are very small, right? I've spent most of my career in, in the nonprofit side in small, small organizations. We're being tasked evermore, if you will, to provide, I mean, really quasi-governmental levels of service to our beneficiaries, to our clientele, if you will. And there is just, in statistical terms, it's, a, it's difficult to deliver, you know, scale, scope, and impact at the absolute size of organizations that most nonprofits are. I mean, if we're talking about the vast majority being in the, I mean, golly, $1 to $10 million annual turnover, and there are many, obviously, that are even smaller than that. So A, first category should be 
if we are serious, and I know we are, about increasing scale, increasing scope, and deepening persistent, sustainable impact for those we serve, then to me, that incentive is mission-oriented and is a reason why we should be thinking more and more about, well, all right, how do we come together in meaningful contractual ways, not just, you know, we're friends and we like what we each do, but we're pretty much separate, in order to have what I view as increasingly governmental-level work. You know, so if you're serving 10,000 students, but we really need to help millions, then that should be paused for thought. The second, and that's a, so there's the carrot, if you will, right? It is directly related. I view it at, from a board perspective, it's a fiduciary duty. Your duty is to the mission. And if you can force amplify the impact and effect that you have with the mission, then you should be thinking, at least have this as part of your toolkit for the future. Going the other direction, and we need to not be coy about this, if you will, is the the protective or defensive element for why these are important. At some point, you know, the good news is there's been a massive efflorescence of, of nonprofit founding over the last 30 years, right? The American spirit, we, we do love to do work in this sector. We've pioneered it, frankly, globally. And so now you have, I forget the exact stats now, got them written down. We could look them up quickly. Independent sector has them, whatever, you know, a couple of million new nonprofits founded over the last 30 or 40 years increasingly taking the role, again, of what the New Deal and Great Society government structures were aimed to do, to do. And that's fantastic. And, you know, real kudos to us. But the flip side is that the funding markets in our world, the actual philanthropic funding markets, have not kept pace. And it's been papered over a bit in the last few years because we are enjoying the best economic situation that we've seen, certainly in my lifetime here in, the, in this country. Just talking in crude terms about things such as employment and, you know, the, the wealth that's generated inequitably distributed for sure, but a lot of wealth generated, right? So when the business cycle turns down and it's not an if, it's a when, if there are 10 organizations that look like you and all 10 currently get at least some funding, how certain are you that in fact you'll be, whether they're, let's say out of 10, maybe there's five moving forward that are going to be truly viable, it would strike me that now's the time to have some contingency and scenario planning. So in summary, two major rationales. One is the, you know, the, the sunny side of the street, which is, hey, we should be thinking about partnering up in order to improve the work that we do for those we serve. And then the less sunny side, but equally important, hey, if the rainy day comes, I think you probably want to be planning for what you might need to do today rather than waiting till the rainstorm comes. I'm curious because I often think that in my consulting work, it all comes down to people and emotions. And yep. so given that the nonprofit sector runs a great deal on you know, personal passion and commitment to the mission, how much do you think that that can shield one's judgment about whether or not a merger might be a good idea in the sense of, you know, as an executive director, I'm, I'm deeply committed and my funders are deeply committed and my board is committed and my staff is committed. And so does that shield sort of the clear-eyed analysis of whether a merger makes sense because we're sort of driven by our emotions rather than our, our logic. Oh, yeah, Rhea, I, th I think you peeled away right to the core of the issue. Again, given in contradistinction to the for-profit side where emotion of that sort is often overruled by the broader monetary incentives, which again, don't exist in our sector. So yeah, no, it's, we see this all the time. And I think it's a, it is a major barrier to what I view as increasingly necessary forms of consolidation is precisely that. You have exactly because individuals involved are not merely, hey, I like this work, but may very much define themselves as this is my life's mission work, right? 
it is exceptionally difficult to have folks come to understand, oh, it may be that there's a, in organizational terms, a better structure to, to do this work. Not to be melodramatic, but in effect, this is, we are talking about organizational mortality at some level, existential questions. And it's just as delicate when you're dealing with issues of death at an individual level, right? I mean, we're going to gather at Thanksgiving in my house, and we're going to have several 80-year-olds and a 90-year-old in the room along with much younger folks. And I don't think anybody's going to bring up, you know, who's going to talk about what is actually clearly looming for those individuals sooner than later at Thanksgiving? That would be the, <laughs> the worst possible time to raise it. Having said that, it doesn't mean the, you know, those individuals aren't thinking about it along with the rest of their family outside of, say, a Thanksgiving gathering. I view it that way. I say to myself, look, there's a time and a place, but it is equally, it, just as it would be truly a gross breach of human behavior to raise such issues at Thanksgiving table. It equally is irresponsible, I think, to not have planning in place. Right? You know, and so I view it, I actually, and I draw a lot of my inspiration, you might say, from something as, it's commonsensical in a way. I mean, how do I, how do I want to be dealt with by my own family, older and younger, and deploy those sort of anthropological approaches to our organizational life? especially when you're dealing with founders and deeply vested long-term senior staff like the ED typically is. Tell me this. If I'm an executive director and I'm listening to this podcast and I'm saying to myself, Daniel, this is making some sense to me. What are some signs or some cues to me as a leader that an M&A might be a viable solution? Sure. I, I think one of the first things to think about is what signals are you getting from your presumably longer term funders. A lot of this has to do with the oxygen in the room, right? And you, you, know, you, you can't, can't breathe without it. So I would pay real close attention and have really candid conversations with your current funders. And likewise, with how many, how many proposals to what looked to be pretty likely prospective funders, in fact, didn't get turned down, right? Or didn't get funded, it did get turned down. I mean, look, if you're in a situation where you're, everything is, is peaches and roses, then you know the shoe may be on the other foot. You may wish to consider, hey, I appear to be in a much stronger position. Hey, it may be that I become an acquirer. That's a, a legit thing to think about. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the issue that you know people don't mind talking about that. Everybody assumes they'll be the the acquirer, right? But if you're, I think. As the ED and presumably a board member yourself, again, it comes back to the fiduciary duty. I'd say, look, for the last X years, right, we've been hovering at the same dollar amount. It's getting harder even to raise that. I am aware of my colleagues in the company adjacent spaces seem to be getting some of the money that typically I would have thought we would have gotten. We're just as good as we ever were. It's not about that. But markets, you know, markets do speak. And I would say, the first thing you need to do is have that kind of candid environmental feedback loop. And if it is increasingly clear that the best you can hope for is to maintain, probably running even harder to get that, it ought to occur to you that, huh, there's a deeper structural thing here. And it has nothing to do with how good people are. It's not the point here. It really is about limited resources being allocated, whether you like it or not, and in, in may or may not be coming your way any longer. And you should be thinking to yourself, huh. Is there a way in which I can entice the funders to return to their funding levels or the desired higher level by virtue of combining with somebody else? Daniel, 
kind of a nitty gritty question, which is a little micro, so we can zoom out again after this. But I'm just curious, in your experience after a merger, can both parties expect to retain most of their donor base? Because, you know, for us, when we were fundraising for Breakthrough New York, we very much attached people to the brand of Breakthrough. And so I don't know if you can really shift that loyalty over. So, yeah, another absolute threshold question. I mean, to put it this way, I've done a number of transactions and initiatives like this in the nonprofit sector. And I would tell you that you actually do not even proceed to the level of getting the two boards to agree prior to even you know moving forward from there. I mean, it's, it's part of your key due diligence right up front. If any sizable number of either party's anchor funders were to balk, then clearly that's a deal, in my opinion, right? I think logic suggests your your logic implicit there, Ria, is, is I think excellent, is that's a deal killer before, you know, but you need to know that early. And so part of what happens in these situations is that you are already speaking on both sides with addressing precisely that question. Hey, if we were to do this, would you leave? My experience has been so far the reverse of people say, no, this is something that, again, it's like talking about death at Thanksgiving. Nobody wants to do raise that subject. We're so glad you did. We would absolutely support this. But you can't, I would absolutely say if some, if, if any signal coming back from either side is, oh, wait a minute, we're deeply attached to that and this, and it, it wouldn't work, then no, you don't want to do it. But people are afraid to even raise the question. And therefore, we actually don't, people are pretty, you know, walk around saying, oh, I, I know my funders would hate that. You may be pretty surprised. One of the benefits of being out on my own is already, you know, being able to have conversations with funders since I'm not I'm I have no skin in the game in that sense any longer, right? I'm not I'm not attached directly to any one organization. I'm attached to the mission. I think it's a pretty open secret that most funders are far more amenable to this sort of thing than the organizations themselves. Most of them will tell you, hey, my portfolio already has five groups that look pretty similar and I got another 20 I keep turning down. There's an awful lot of you in City X that are delivering uh, meals on Wheels, and you each have a slightly different angle. but So I, I suspect that they will, in fact, and they will need to be, that's the, the third leg of our stool, the, the philanthropic community. I think many of them have pretty clear ideas on what needs to be done. And right now, economy's good. It's harder to nudge people. But I do believe that when the economy cycles down, I mean, and that's the scenario planning, right, for them and for us. If the Dow, if the Dow drops 20%, and everybody feels a lot less wealthy and tax revenues are lower, can each of us candidly expect to receive the same level of funding, let alone any increase? Probably not. I'd like to ask another nitty gritty question, and then I want to get into the specifics of the merger that you led. How does it not feel like a giant game of kickball? Or I'm sort of imagining that two boards and two organizations coming together feels a little bit like the Brady Bunch. (laughs) And so how do you manage a blended board and a blended staff in a blended culture? Yeah, again, it, it, there's this is an art, not a science. I think it does definitely start with the boards. In the same way, all of that work that one does prior to reaching the formal decisions, all of the the increasingly detailed due diligence, and it, it literally is due diligence, right? There's a lot of legal, it's an actual legal framework around a great deal of this. If your boards, it's like anything else. I mean, if the boards, it's clear that the individuals on the boards are not going to be able to work well potentially as a merged board, then that's a major, you're you're most likely going to call it off, right? I mean, it makes no sense to attempt to 
to jam folks together who would have, and it can't just be that they're reluctant. I mean, there has to be pretty much full-throated embrace and support for what's about to happen, or it really doesn't make sense. But that's, again, the art, what has happened time and time again, and this is both from my own experience over years, this applies, by the way, equally to the to the for-profit sector, I mean, people are people, and the literature says the same. It's uh, Sometimes the earliest supporters get cold feet. Sometimes those who are a little bit on the fence turn out to be your strongest supporters. And this comes back to the fundamental work of the executive director, right? The creature who typically is the one who is both the senior staff member and also on the board, typically, right? And the ED's job is always to find a way to, to get all those different folks rowing in the same direction. It just gets a little bit more complex when you're not talking about another board as well that will become one. So one of the things I have noticed about the nonprofit sector is everybody feels like a magical unicorn. Like, well, we deliver services in this like very particular way. And like, this is the best way. And this is our way to do it. And so I'm wondering, I mean, I'm imagining by necessity, a merger involves some level of compromise. And as they say, a, a good compromise is when everyone walks away unhappy. So talk to me a little bit about what sort of compromises either party should be prepared to make and what compromises are not ones that folks should compromise on. Yeah. And I think I would, there are definitely compromises. There's no doubt about that. I would actually though suggest that a better way or more, more persuasive way perhaps to at least engage in the early thinking on, on whether or not a merger or acquisition is for you is to think about complementarity. In other words, I mean, if two, if two groups, looked and really were extremely similar, there would almost certainly have to be certain forms of compromise that you're going to need to find that out pretty early as well, right? I think to step back for a second, some of the most logical and I think most successful deals, if we look, thinking again, the vast literature on the for-profit side as well, because now we're into mechanics and rationale as opposed to incentives. So a lot of similarity, things we can very definitely learn from the, again, vast study of, of M&A over a century now. And that is, look, so you've got group A that is really strong in product development and, and design, let's say, right? Just generically speaking. But I've never been as sharp on the marketing side, right? They're just, they're a bunch of engineers who come up with great stuff, but that company is just never quite, maybe like Xerox Park in the old days, right? They created all this great stuff, but never, they had difficulties commercializing it. And let's say there's another group a direct competitor in some respects, at least in some markets. And that's part of what due diligence helps you understand exactly the strengths. Let's say that, hey, you know, it's not like they own a lot of intellectual property of their own. They're not the developers, but they're great marketers. I mean, they can take they can take your stuff and they can sell it everywhere. They're, they're brilliant. I mean, this is a, you know, I'm obviously exaggerating to make a point, but here's an example where potentially at least it's not so much compromise. It's, oh my gosh, you guys are great creators, but kind of weak on marketing. We don't make this stuff up. We are great at selling it, but we ought to be holding hands because there's a third party out there. There's a new competitor on the on the block who seems to be combining both, right? And they're eating both our lunches. So coming together there is less compromise and much more about complementarity of services, of, of product, et cetera. And I think the most successful deals that we've seen, for-profit or non-profit, tend to revolve around that. But that, again, requires a level of strategic understanding about your actual nature of your competition, of the delivery mechanisms. And most, here's the here's the point, most executive directors, and Ria, I know you'll agree with this because you and I have been there, 
we're sweating payroll, we're worrying about making rent, we're thinking quarter to quarter at most to hit our programmatic goals, maybe as far as next year's gala. That's about it. I mean, you're so immersed at for small nonprofits that you don't Daniel, have Daniel, I don't know what you're talking about. I was flush with cash all the time. <laughs> I didn't yeah, even know exactly. what to do with all the money I had. Exactly. No, I, to- totally. <laughs> yeah. No, right? So this is a case where a lot of, I believe, a lot of great opportunities simply never get surfaced. They're, they never become opportunities, not because they don't exist, but because we are, in our sector, too cash-strapped, too resource-strapped, too busy on the nitty-gritty to even be able to take the time it takes to to evaluate. And do contrast that with the for-profit. I mean, every every business, even small businesses, there's somebody tasked with the job of, I mean, really keeping track of their immediate environment coming up with ideas like, oh, hey, boss, I've been studying this. And it looks like in Tulsa, there's this group that is knocking it out of the park on XYZ. And we ought to like just acquire them and get their people their IP. That's the way it works there. And we need to do more of that in our sector. Yeah. I'm going to change tack a little bit here in our last couple of minutes together. Talk to me briefly about the merger that you led and what went well and what were lessons learned for you? Sure. Uh, I appreciate that. And this is uh, referring to the merger that took place over the last two years between Mouse and your colleagues now all together, Code Interactive. So two groups, uh, both New York City based, uh, born and, and based, but with national scope in tech-oriented youth development, computer science, the maker movement, et cetera. So that merger took place, approved and done. The successor organization is, in, in terms of name is Mouse, retaining some of the code interactive branding where most specific or relevant. And I would say a couple of things, both the good lessons learned and, and, and some of the bruises, et cetera. One is just, again, real shout out to the boards. At the end of the day, these are the highest levels of fiduciary duty and governance, right? So this is, as much as it may or may not be driven by staff, boards, they are legally responsible, obviously, for all of this. So I just have to say that what, and it sounds simple, right? Just make sure you have great chairs of your boards and great committees. (laughs) That's obviously, if you don't have that, then that will make it difficult. Uh, You do not want to attempt organizational change of this sort without pre-existing strong boards. If you are hoping to merge or acquire somebody to gain strong governance protocols and board practice, I would suggest that's carting the horse in the wrong order. So this is just a huge shout out to the mouse and code interactive boards, now a combined board, obviously. That's sort of big lesson number one, the board and the boards prior. Number two, this is extremely time consuming. There's a legal and and regulatory framework around all of this. Obviously, the boards have to agree and then you go through another similar process to be approved, presumably, by the Attorney General's Office of the state in which the entity is located. So that's a twofold thing. One, the message there is you will need to invest significantly to make this work. We are famously frugal by necessity in our sector. We're really good at getting $2 out of every buck we get. This is not, however, the area where you, where you, it's false economy. You do not want to be penny wise, pound foolish. So that's a a good thing to know. It's also the lesson learned is, hey, this will take significant time. There's no sugarcoating that. This is not business as usual. This is extraordinary. So one of the things to think about, too, is you don't stop regular business in order to conduct the merger or the acquisition. This is that extra degree of difficulty. You will continue to do what you do as well as you do it. And in addition, you will have to do that. So just 
a thought on that. And then the third, the third, obviously, staff are the the other side to all of this on the assumption that your funders are with you, which, as I said, was a, a sine qua non. You know, you you have to have they, your key funders have to be agreeing to this long before you get to the board. The board's first question is going to be most likely are our funders with us. So assume your funders are not with you. But the staff obviously is going to be deeply anxious. And I mean this, even if they see the rationale is good, bottom line is change is difficult for everybody. Mergers entail typically some some reduction and duplication of effort, right? So people rightly, uh, and this is extremely understandable, are like, well, wait a minute, I get it. You know, this is great, the mission, et cetera, but what about my job? And I think one of the lessons learned is the earlier one can discuss the what is going to happen with the staff, I mean, right down to the level of the program coordinator at your local site, you know, you, you need to and make sure that they are with you and, and understand what's going to happen. And if there do need to be, here's where the compromises come in. You know, if you're saying, well, look, there's two other people doing this even better than we've currently done it over here. What are you going to do for the individual who may be affected? And that's something, again, there are protocols set up in the, in the for-profit sector that are much clearer, much more transparent than have tended to be the norm for nonprofits, primarily because we just don't do this very often. So I think one major lesson learned is speak as comprehensively and, and as early as possible with, with all the staff who will be involved. The good news is that most of our company, our organizations are so small, it's not if you're sitting down with 10,000 people in a big town hall meeting. <laughs> it ought to be it's something manageable, but that's hard. I mean, that's that's hard work. So those are a couple of lessons, good and the some of the lessons that I think are, are worth contemplating for the future. Great. And so, Daniel, I assume the Indigo Pheasant is here to help folks who are thinking about mergers and acquisitions, and we'll make sure to post your information in the show notes. But anything that you want to say in closing with respect to what it is you're doing now and how you might be able to help folks who are interested in exploring this option? Well, sure, Rhea, and I appreciate that. And just as Rhea said at the top of the hour, I didn't pay her to say that. So Indigo Pheasant, my goal is, in fact, to be the hopefully, you know, trusted, neutral third party acting as your technocratic advisor to all sides in organizational restructuring, up to and including merger and acquisition. There are many other ways to do this, by the way. There's strategic alliances with contractual obligations, shared service agreements, venture. There are a lot of different ways in which two organizations or more can work together. And I think, Rhea, to your point, there's a, there's legal and accounting. There's all the things the craftsmanship has to simply be right, and I can certainly help with that. Work. I'm not a lawyer or an accountant, but working with the you know the necessary experts. But at the end of the day, it is about human beings and culture. And as I say, it's an art, not a science. And sometimes, it's, uh, coming back to the family analogy, if you're in the family yourself, it's just sometimes hard to see past your own emotion because you are deeply embedded in this. And sometimes having a third party who is not in the family, but has a clear sense of where the family sits can be useful saying, hey, here, here's what might work in this case. Here's the compromise. Compromise being recommended by a third party is quite often more palatable than the compromise that comes from a party who is self-interested. <laughs> Right. So you are you are the honest broker. So for anyone who is interested in exploring this option, we'll make sure that you can get in touch with Daniel. And Daniel, I really thank you for being on the pod. And we're going to have you back to talk about some other stuff in the future. That sounds great. I appreciate that very much, Ria. And once again, in closing, thank you. you know, this is a, a great service to our, our sector with the podcast here. Oh, thanks, Daniel. We'll talk to you soon. You bet. Bye-bye. 